You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Welcome to Adult Sunday School. We're going to finish the best book in the Bible today. And then next time we'll start the best book in the Bible when we get to it. I think we'll finish 1 Corinthians today. At least that's the plan. Let's open in prayer. Lord, your word is perfect and full of everything we need to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. And this morning as we finish this remarkable epistle of Paul, I pray, Lord, that you would leave us with a glorious taste in our mouths of of how you have protected and built the church through the centuries because it is your responsibility to do that. And as we look at our responsibilities today under your guidance by the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives through your word, might we be useful to you in building the church of God, in lifting one another up, and in blessing the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. So last week... We finished up on verse 14, which is, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine little words that are just piled full of meaning. He says, he, he's just finished um, castigating the Corinthians and encouraging the Corinthians and, and talking to them about standing tall and being, quitting themselves like men and, and uh, be strong, be strong in the faith. And then he says in verse um 14, he says, let all that you do, all you do, be done in love. And Paul has said this in numerous ways, in numerous varieties throughout his, his uh, epistles. And he's going to finish this one differently than he finishes any of his other epistles, and it has to do with love. So I don't want to steal our end thunder, but we'll get there. So his encouragement was to that they would quit themselves act like, etc., in love. And so then, uh, now what we're going to do is Paul's going to turn from all these teaching and all this didactic, and why am I holding this thing, uh, information, and he's going to um, do some practical housekeeping items and close the book. So let's, uh, let's read chapter 16, verses 15 through the end of the chapter. Now, I urge you, brethren... You know the household of Stephanus, that they were the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. That you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. And I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila, and Prisca greets you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This, the greeting is in my own hand. Paul, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So he, he's just encouraged them to do everything they do in love. And so he's going to follow his own advice. And he's going to finish this book, finish this epistle in love, encouraging the Corinthians. So he says in verse 15, he says, Now I urge you, I push you, I beg you, I, I adjure you 
And then in parentheses, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. And then he says, that you also be in subjection. But in verse, in verse 15, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has example after example of unloving, unkind, vindictive, and petty people. Uh, people who thought that they were doing above and beyond when they were actually engaging in uh, ungodliness, especially in chapter 5. He's continually calling them to account, and maybe not by name, but by action, although Paul has, on occasion, called people to account by name. He spends prodigious amounts of words correcting false doctrine, calling out bad behavior, and giving descriptives, descriptives from Scripture and from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to combat the wickedness that seemed to pervade the Corinthian church in so many ways. Here, though, is a bright spot. Stephanus and his household, which would include his family and his slaves, were the first converts or the first effective workers in producing fruit in Achaia, which included the city of Athens. Paul makes reference to the household of Stephanus in this way. He says in verse 1, in 1 Corinthians verse 1, he said, or chapter 1, verse 16, he says, Now I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't, do not know whether I baptized any other. And that's just kind of a passing reference. But Paul was likely the one under whose ministry they came to the Lord. The word devoted... So as we look at, at this man, this man Stephanus, um, they had determined about them, they had determined themselves as a family that they were going to be useful to the saints. So they were, it says that they were devoted to the ministry. They have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. They set themselves aside and their primary goal in life was to minister to the saints. The word is in the intensive, and it indicates that the household of Stephanus served entirely on their own initiative. They had assigned themselves the responsibility of ministering to whoever was doing the work of the Lord. This would be a deacon kind of work, and in fact, the word translated ministry is from the Greek word diakonia, diakonia. It, uh, it's, it's an interesting word. It's an old, uh, I believe, ionic, that the old original word, the root of it meant stirring up dust by virtue of your activity. And so it came to be applied to someone who was always busy, always helping, always serving, always picking up, always caring for others, taking care of other people. And that's the word that God uses that, that the Lord has given to us for the, the idea of those who would serve in the church. They would be busy. And this Stephanus and his family, this is what they were doing. They spent themselves in service to the Lord, and we'll, and we'll see some more about that as we go. This kind of ministry is thoughtful, carefully planned, and efficiently executed. This is not willy-nilly service, but the kind of support that ministries thrive on. This man's home, and this woman's home, his wife, was a place of refuge, a place of recharging, and a place of renewal. These are the kind of people who are, as the King James translates it, what a great word, they are addicted to ministry. There are no, hello, my name is Cornell, and I'm addicted to ministry. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need for support groups for that. They are a support group. So they were, the, uh, he saw needs where no one else did, and he met them. He loved the saints, and he loved to serve them. And Paul, 
Paul himself is refreshed by this man. And so in verse 16, he says, he says, after he talks about that, he says, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Stephanus did not seek leadership, apparently. He didn't ask to be put in charge of anything. He didn't ask to teach. He didn't ask to um, be in a position of leadership, but his actions demonstrated to the body at Corinth and to Paul that he was, in fact, a leader. And so Paul calls the believers there to be in subjection to men like that and to any others who pour themselves into the service of the gospel in the church, whether it be preaching, teaching, or service in such a way as Stephanus had demonstrated. <laughs> this life that Stephanus lived was a picture of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20. He said this, in chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. But Jesus called the disciples, he, he called them to himself, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall become, shall be your servant. Not may, not might, not could, but shall be your servant. Whoever And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The idea being that those in leadership don't elevate themselves. If they do, they're not to be in leadership. If they want to be the big guy, the big gal, that's the worst place for them. These are people that don't seek the position, but they live it, they work it. What the church needed then and what it still needs now are men who love to serve and who don't need credit. Much can be accomplished if people don't care who gets the credit. Men who believe that the gospel is most important and that people are most important and that the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is most important and that their fame and recognition are both unnecessary and unneeded. Only then can the slaves, and the word is slaves, it's not servant, it's not uh, butler, it's slave. Only then can the slaves of Christ, for that is what men should be and should recognize themselves as, only then can they do the work of God in a manner that will glorify God only, that will give only Him the glory. Verses like this are always exegeted uh, to remind the body to be in submission to those who are over them, who are in responsibility over them, and that is proper. That's important because that is what the verse says. But it bears reminding ourselves that those who are in positions of leadership need to recognize that they are there in trust for the Lord Jesus Christ himself, over his body, over his flock, whom he died for and whom he loves. He loves his sheep, and he will only intentionally place over them those who love them as well. If the person who is in responsibility in a particular service, in a particular ministry somewhere, is not, does not love the brethren, does not serve the brethren, does not care for the brethren, Jesus didn't put them there. They did. And so it is that believers should submit to those in responsibility over them, but that, should miss, that submission should actually be an easy one and, and delightful because they know that those in responsibility over them truly have their best interests at heart. Should their leaders rebuke them, it would be because they were, are loved and it has become evident that they are doing, what they are doing is damaging themselves, their relationship with the Lord, their relationship with others, and their testimony to the world. Believers are called into submission, but their true submission is to the Lord himself. And those in leadership need to remember this. And just as we are all to be Bereans 
and check what we are taught. We also have the responsibility to be certain that those who are in positions of responsibility should actually be there. We are responsible to make sure they are properly leading and our yardstick isn't somebody's ideals or feelings. It is scripture. Are they humble? Are they thoughtful? Are they immersed in scripture and able to effectively live it and teach it? Are they well spoken of? Are they themselves teachable? Scripture provides numerous guidelines for determining these things. You can start in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And there is an excellent, if you will, checklist of the characteristics that should define people in positions of responsibility. The Corinthian church was a church of non-submitters. <laughs> it was also a church full of false teaching. These two things created a vicious circle in which the teachers were not respected and the taught were haughty and unsubmissive. Not a pretty picture. And so here, Paul encourages the Corinthians to be in subjection to men who deserve it in Christ. They should be men who toil, not work. That is, they spend themselves as much as they possibly can in service to Christ. As one commentator put it, he said, service, not status, should be the basis for honor in the church. When status becomes our basis for honor, we are just this side of ruined, if not already ruined. The last little phrase here in this verse, though, is instructive as well. It says, and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that there are others besides Stephanus who deserve submission. And uh, so this verse, these last two verses, Paul begins to get practical as he's getting ready to end this letter, this epistle to the Corinthians. Um, he spent 15 and a half chapters detailing how to get back online, how to get back on track in the many areas that they were off track. And now as he's closing it up, he wants them to know, he's going to want them to know a couple of things. We have a, a more sure word from which we can derive our daily living, and, and he wants them to know that he loves them. And, he's, and we're going to see that. That's really important. Any questions, comments about 15 and 16? Verse 17, and imagine this. Now, he's in prison. He's in Ephesus, and he says, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. Paul was greatly encouraged by these three men of Corinth who came to him. The general idea of this verse is that what he brought is that he brought to them, they brought to him refreshing primarily because they were men of service and they brought him news of Corinth. And he always wanted to hear about the churches that he had established. And he says in verse chapter 7, verse 1, Now, uh, it's, it's very likely, by the way, that, that they're the ones who delivered the letter that is spoken of in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, he says, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, which is the beginning of an entire now, now concerning, now concerning, now concerning series of responses to this letter. And it's very likely these three men that brought that letter to him from Corinth. Remember, that question was the first of many that Paul answered. It must have been a delight for Paul to meet with these three men that were all, who were all that was good about Corinth. The church there, with its difficulties, still had servants in it who loved the Lord, proclaimed the scriptures, and were a blessing to be around. You all know people like that. You like being around them. They're an encouragement. They just lift your spirits. That's what these kinds of men were like. <clears throat> the church there, with its difficulties, still had these servants. They proclaimed the scriptures. They were a blessing to others. And although God can comfort us directly, he often chooses to comfort us through the ministry of others. This is the kind of thing that these three men were doing for Paul. They were bringing him the comfort of the Lord. 
Are we that way with others? Are we those about whom it can be said that we are refreshing to be around? Even the church at Corinth had such men and women. And Paul is, is praising them to the church at Corinth, reminding them, don't forget what you have right there at home. Verse 18, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours, thus acknowledge, therefore acknowledge such men. This is a word that connotes the word refreshed. Um, it's a word that connotes an idea of delightful rest after a period of work or labor. Um, I really, I like to work, and but I also like the rest that comes afterwards. It's If you work hard, there's kind of an innate recognition that you probably, maybe I deserve this rest for once, you know? <laughs> it's a time of recovering and becoming restrengthened. It's a cold drink of water on a very hot day. These men brought encouragement, blessing, and brotherhood. These types of people in the church are all too often not appreciated enough. They're the ones that bring the flowers that no one else thinks about. They pick up after others without ever seeking praise. They have a kind word, an unsolicited hug. They see a need and a hurt, and they meet it and mend it. They're the ones that you just like to be around, and they know how to lift spirits. More often than not, though it's instinctive with them, it, it's a gift God has given them, and the church really needs that gift. Paul says, acknowledge such men, but what's really a blessing is that they don't really know they're doing it. God is working through them to, do, to deliver through their lives and their character the blessing and the lifting that the body of Christ often needs daily. And so Paul says, acknowledge them. And this, the, the word translated acknowledge is, uh, implies getting to know and making known. In Corinth, everybody was more interested in tooting their own horn. There was very little recognition of those who were doing the work of the Lord. People were more inclined to put out their own press releases and then even believe them. There was simply not enough recognition of the servants of Lord, the Lord in Corinth. And today, we either have men building themselves up, creating giant followings of people who are gullible enough to eat up what they are dishing out, biblical or un, actually mostly unbiblical, if not all, or we have faithful servants who receive no recognition at all. This could be those who are preaching, teaching, or more likely those who are quietly serving more often than not behind the scenes. They are doing the menial and hard labor that actually provides the atmosphere and the ability for those who are teaching and preaching to do that and to do it effectively. Men who try to make sure that you know who they are should become an afterthought and a footnote and a negative one at that in the history of the church. While those who truly belong to the Hall of Fame often are never elevated to that status. And the funny thing is, they can live with that. They just want to serve the Lord. Uh, there are those in the church, though, about whom Paul had great concern, and John and the other apostles, Peter, whom they wrote about. And so in 3 John, we read this chapter, in 3 John 9, verses 9 and 10, he wrote, he says this, I wrote to some, this was about a fellow named Diotrephes. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so, and he puts them out of the church. This kind of person needs to be first, needs to be outed and recognized and such. He needs to be important. That's what he wants. He does not welcome the true believers of the scripture, 
of the scripture into his church or fellowship. He spreads false information about true men and women of God. He is inhospitable to believers, and he forbids those under his bad leadership to be hospitable to believers as well. Finally, anybody who disagrees with him, he puts out of his church and fellowship. This is some of what was going on in Corinth, and men like Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus uh, were true, were the exception. And Paul wanted them recognized as a blessing to the body of Christ. So, one of their favorite sayings, too, is, touch not the prophet of the Lord. What I'm doing, you better just believe what I'm doing and just leave me alone because I'm in charge here. <sighs> What's amazing to me is that people like that are actually elevated and lifted into positions of responsibility, and the flock under them doesn't get it. This is really bad. And, it, and th this fellow named Diotrephes was like that. We have plenty of them today. So now Paul ends this letter with some practical statementships, statementships, some statements about fellowship and hospitality. Any questions about uh, 17 and 18? So then he says in verse 19, The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. So this would have been an actual greeting from the churches of Asia. It's likely that maybe even they've sent some sort of greeting that Paul might have left with them for reading. Uh, but for certain, the brethren in those churches gave Paul a personal message to give to give to the church at Corinth. Tell the people at church. And so there might have been, who knows, it could have been several people came up and said, you're going to see so-and-so in that church. Would you tell them this? And, and so Paul was willing to bring these personal messages from the other churches in Asia to the church at Corinth. Um, it was a message of love, concern, and blessing. The idea is that they wished the Corinthian church well. Aquila and Prisca, also known as Priscilla, um, were husband and wife who had housed Paul during his first ministry in Corinth, detailed in Acts chapter 18. They were fellow tent makers and highly respected both by Paul in the Corinthian church. They were respected as well. They had accompanied Paul to Ephesus, and they were the ones who took Apollos aside and properly exegeted some scripture that he needed in order to get himself on track correctly with the scripture. They had established a congregation in their own home and were some of those servants that Paul wanted the Corinthian church to acknowledge as well. Towards the end of the book of, the Rome, of Romans, Paul makes this statement about Aquila and Priscilla. They had actually risked their lives for him in some way, shape, or form. In verse, chapter 16, verses 3 and 4, he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom I not only give, not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So in those days, there were no formal church buildings. Believers would establish the larger, more usable homes as a meeting place. In Rome, that could very well be dangerous because Christianity was not an accepted religion. It was not legal. And wherever these two were, Aquila and Priscilla, they opened their home to other believers in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were Jewish believers who had likely been banished from Rome by the Emperor Claudius in the year, in the year AD 50 when he banished them all from, from Rome. They picked up, moved, and served the Lord in their new city with gusto. Barclay speaks of them in his commentary this way. He says, there were no... There is one thing about these two, one great thing about these two. In those early days, there were no church buildings. It is, in fact, not until the third century that we hear about a church building at all. The little congregations met in private houses. If a house had a room big enough, it was there that the Christian fellowship met. Now, wherever Aquila and Priscilla went, their home became a church. When they are in Rome, Paul sends greetings to them and to the church that is in their house. 
When he writes from Ephesus, he sends greetings from them and from the church that is in their house. Aquila and Priscilla were two of these wonderful people who make their homes centers of Christian light and love, who welcome many guests because Christ is always their unseen guest, and who make their houses havens of rest and peace and friendship for the lonely and the tempted and the sad and the depressed. A great compliment Homer paid one of his characters was to say of him, quote, he dwelt in a house by the side of the road, and he was the friend of wayfaring men, unquote. The Christian wayfarer ever found an inn of peace where Aquila and Priscilla lived. God grant us to make our homes like that. What a delightful couple they must have been. And this church was blessed to have them in it. Wherever they went, their home became a place of refuge. We know people like that. What a blessing they are. And then he says this in verse 20, All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Thomas isn't here today. We're going to talk about the holy kiss. I won't. <laughs> it is not really known who all the brethren are, who all they are, but it is likely those who are connected with Paul in Asia and especially Ephesus where he was. In those days, it was common in Jewish circles to greet one another with a kiss. This was on the cheek or on the forehead, and it represented essentially the same thing that a hug or a handshake does today. In any event, Christianity promotes, promotes warm affection between believers. Paul made sure they understood that the kiss was to be holy, uh, that is a sacred is sacred and an expression of brotherly love. There was no place for any kind of abuse in this respect. In most evangelical churches, it is often more likely that affection is lacking. We would do well as the Christians, as the Corinthians should have, to be an affectionate, kind church that welcomes both those we know and the stranger. And both of those, those we know and the stranger, should equally feel welcome. Mark the shy person, engage them. Develop the skill of being welcoming. And it's not easy because you, you in this day and age, will I be intruding on their day? No, they're here. They're here for fellowship. They're here for, for teaching, for learning. Let's, let's be about, and, and I don't really have to say that here. It's hard to get you guys to sit down and, and come to Sunday school because you're so busy doing this. And so when, when you were doing that, Jan, right on. Keep it up. Good stuff. We need to be that way with one another. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, which is even more precious and intimate than some familial brother and sister relationships. But, Thomas, no kissing. Hugs are good to those who can be hugged, to those who are huggable. <laughs> Any questions, comments? <laughs> We're going to leave that alone. This greeting, Paul says, the greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Paul generally used an amanuensis as a secretary and dictated his letters. One of the techniques of the ancients to give authenticity to a letter that they wrote was when most of it was written as a sec by a secretary, as Paul's was, was to end the letter with their own hand. So um, I imagine what happened is the secretary got up from the desk or whatever, or handed him over the, pap the papyri. <laughs> and what follows, this right here, this verse, <clears throat> verse 21, and what follows in the original uh, art, in the original um, book, epistle, was written by Paul himself to the Corinthians. He authenticates the letter by writing the final passage. It's much the same thing as when we sign a letter today. We sign it. This, you type it up, and all of that's formal and, and, and well, hopefully, spelled right and everything. And then you sign it in your own hand, um, usually in cursive. And he says this. Now, this is just a... It's not strange, because nothing the Holy Spirit does is strange, but it's remarkable. 
I looked at all the endings of all of his other epistles, and there's nothing like this in his other epistles. He's, he's greet the brethren, all the brethren greet you, they send their greetings. They, Quilla and Priscilla, send their greetings. They greet you heartily in the Lord. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And I'm signing this in my own hand. If anyone doesn't love the Lord, he's to be accursed, Maranatha. I read that and it's, it's just, it's, it's stark. It's startling. And when, in, when Paul ends his letters, generally they are with words of encouragement and blessing. It is only in this letter where he punctuates actually the middle of his ending with this startling statement. He reminds the Corinthians that their hearts must be turned fully to the Lord, and if they are not, then they are to be accursed. He, uses the, he then uses a common Aramaic statement which had just been adopted into the Greek language, into the Greek church, and stayed. He said in Aramaic, in Aramaic, our Lord come. It appears that this was stated in such a way as to tell the Corinthians that if they did not love the Lord, they were to be accursed and then the Lord come and take them away. They were to be removed before they could cause any more harm in the body there. What an awful idea. How far better, how far, far better for them to get back into submission to the Lord and begin following Him again with a whole heart. This is Paul's actual wish as tendered by the rest of this incredible epistle. He wants them to become loved, become loving again. He wants them to get their doctrine in order. He wants them to, to turn back in the ways that they needed to turn back. But then he says this startling thing. If he doesn't, if you don't love the Lord, you're to be accursed. Maranatha. And may the Lord come. And then he says this. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. So as this letter winds down to its final statement, Paul ends it the way he typically does. And this, these last two verses are the way he typically, for the most part, ends his epistles. Here he commends that the grace of the Lord Jesus be with the Corinthians. Grace that provides the ability to trust Christ in the first place and get back on track and get back to loving the Lord so that they don't have to be removed. Grace that provides the ability to be sanctified day by day in their walk with Christ so that their bad behavior can be corrected. Grace that... Um, grace that perfects, that finishes the work that he started them in Christ Jesus. He wants the Corinthians to know that the all-conquering power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God is daily available to them to be applied by grace in making them into the kind of Christians that God has in mind, not that they have in mind. And this is a good and wonderful thing. The, pre the preceding verse called down God's condemnation to those, on those who do not love the Lord. This verse calls down Christ's grace and love on those who do love him. Before we finish this book, any comments or questions about those last couple of verses? Startling things. So finally he says this, and, this is, and he, he doesn't end any of his other epistles like this. He says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And finally, lest the Corinthians be overwhelmed by the sometimes harsh tone of this letter, Paul ends it by telling them that he loves them. He tells them directly that he loves them. This is one of the ways in which believers are changed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Even when they have differences, uh, I'm not talking about the important doctrine differences, but we all have differences. We all have different opinions. Um, I think I've told you about the t-shirt one of my family members used to wear. Everyone is entitled to my opinion. We all have our own opinions. We all have our own ideas about things. But in the, in the things that make us 
brothers and sisters in Christ, the, the pure, sincere doctrines that are, are most important, we are, we're united in those. And even when we have those other differences, our common heritage, their common heritage in the Lord Jesus Christ, causes genuine love to exist between them and between us. And so Paul wrote this letter in love to deal with the problems in this new church as well as to give the Corinthians the tools that they needed to be strengthened in all ways in Christ Jesus so that they might live productive, glorious lives in service to the King of Kings. And so it is, as we have the benefit of reading, learning, and being changed by the indwelling Holy Spirit using the Word of God, we and the Corinthians have received grace upon grace in Christ Jesus and to His glory. This particular ending occurs only here in all the epistles of Paul. The epistle to the Romans ends this way. He says, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. Good ending. Second Corinthians ends, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Galatians closed with these words. Galatians, where he was just chewing out the Judaizers and dealing with all those difficulties. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. And so the other epistles go. It is here where he had to spend so much time in correction that he ends on a clear note of love so that the Corinthians would know that he cared for them and that he loved them. And thus ends this epistle of the Apostle Paul, an epistle that swept wide and covered so many wonderful doctrines as well as so much needful teaching for the early church and for us today. Thus it is, thus it is, and we're going to end early, but thus it is that God's word is eternal and effectual, no matter the time nor the issues. We deal with the very same. Human nature is no different today than it was 6,000 years ago. Jesus Christ is no different today than he was in eternity past. The Holy Spirit is the same today, yesterday, and forever. The Father is the same. The Word of God is eternal. It is perfect. It is pure. It is useful for everything that is needful in building up believers to become the kind of people who will glorify the Father for eternity. That's what it's for. Everything that is important in life is dealt with in the words of Scripture. And for that, we can always be tremendously grateful every day that the Father gave us the words of life. And Peter said, who else would we turn to? So, and thus ends 1 Corinthians. And I had this brilliant idea that we could probably go into 2 Corinthians. And I have permission to do that. What do you think? That work? <laughs> you guys are just, sometimes you just, all those in favor of second. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, any comments about the book in general or, about, or questions? Anything that's come up that you've thought about? I had a great time going through this book. And uh, thank you for letting, letting me teach it, letting me learn it with you. And uh, I guess we're done. I thought I'd, I thought I'd time it a little better than this. We'd end about 10, 10 14, but you've got uh, nine minutes. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for its place in the canon of Scripture. Thank you that you have used the training and the teaching and the correcting of an ancient church to train and teach and correct us. Thank you that your word is sufficient and perfect and changing us not changing itself. We thank you that we can trust it. We thank you that we can depend on it. And we thank you that you are behind all of it in eternity past, going on to eternity future. We commit ourselves to you even further today 
to obey your word, to love the Lord Jesus Christ, and to de demonstrate that love in our obedience. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.